2: Hi, I'm Andy Murray and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast.
3: Hello and welcome to the Tennis Podcast, brought to you in association with The Telegraph. The clay court season for 2016 is underway. Not all of it red clay, some of it green in Charleston, where Sloane Stephens is up against Elena Vesnina in the final as we record. But the first really big event on the surface starts this week with the Monte Carlo Rolex Masters. It's not actually a mandatory event, but judging by the field of players, it might as well be Djokovic. Vavrinka, Federer, Nadal, Murray, all there, and it promises to be a fantastic week. There to enjoy every drop of sunshine, every glimpse of the most stunning panoramic view of the ocean imaginable, every top spun forehand and slide into the red dirt. Is Catherine Whittaker? I'm not.
4: You're not, are you, David? I'm in a little
3: windowless room near Birmingham. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm in a room so small, Catherine, that I could actually touch all four walls at the same time if I had I have to arms. say,
4: I mean, it, it, spaciousness is... Uh, there's many things that Monte Carlo has going for it, and uh, spaciousness is not one of them. I'm in my hotel room at the moment, and uh, pleasant... As the surroundings are, space and uh, property square inches are quite the premium out here. So it's not exactly the most cat swingy hotel room I've ever been in.
3: Cat swingy, that is a wonderful description. Uh, do you have a window, though?
4: Oh, I've got I've got two windows, David. They've treated me to two windows, so it's the lap of luxury. Well,
3: you're beating me 2-0, and you're in Monte Carlo when I'm near Birmingham. So I think you've won hands down. Uh, but you're going to be there reporting over the course of the next week. Uh, you were there last week. What's it like, Monte Carlo?
4: It's it's the most fascinating place. I mean, uh, I I can't believe that you actually lived here david that staggers me i mean it's
3: yeah i mean why have i asked yeah question? exactly
4: you know what it's like better than i do i mean i i absolutely love it to visit i would never want to live here because it just seems sort of so d- detached to me from what i know as the real world you know the people watching here is is a jaw-dropping experience you know they're just people that lead such a different life to to the one i do it's uh yeah it's sort of fascinating voyeurism but uh yeah i'm i you, you know you, I i just can't imagine david law a young david law fitting into that scene somehow what
3: what are you saying
4: <laughs> i'm saying um i'm saying i can't see you sort of in a in a panama hat and deck shoes and sort of ray-ban wayfarer sunglasses reclining on the french riviera somehow
3: I'm deeply, deeply hurt I mean, because that's exactly what I used to wear in the Don't four years they I Don't think they make deck shoes that
4: big, David.
3: Well, look, all you have to do is go down to the harbour and grab yourself a couple of canoes and you're sorted. I mean, that's, you know, they fit like a glove, I'm telling you. Uh, I did used to, I think I I'd regaled the story a year ago about how I used to go running around the casino square sweating all over the Ferraris and basically just getting uh, dismissed by the doorman uh, who stood there saying, will you please go away, you you scum of the earth. Um, but no, I, Monte Carlo is a very unusual place it is uh, an extraordinary place for a a 20-something brummie to spend a few years and that's exactly what i had the opportunity to do and it is the most stunning tennis tournament as we've said the field is extraordinary and uh, i think we're in for 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 quite a week i mean catherine the the lineup itself you've had today the the sort of tournament preview day isn't it they they kind of have like a a soft launch to the tournament in monte carlo don't they because They've had a couple of main draw matches. They've had the qualifying matches. But it all feels like it gets underway tomorrow, doesn't it? We're going to hear from the players in a few in a few minutes time. You've uh, got some some answers, uh, some fascinating answers from some of the big names that we're going to hear Djokovic and and Nadal and Federer in just a moment or two. But the tournament itself, it's, it's got one of those kind of Sunday starts
4: yeah the the I mean the French it was the French open that sort of really began that Sunday start thing and Monte Carlo subsequently adopted it but yeah a, a soft start it's not they're just sort of i guess it gives fans an extra uh, weekend day to come and watch some tennis, so you can't argue with that I suppose, but yeah, it does feel like a bit of a, a false start if you like, and that tomorrow will be the day that things really get underway but they've had packed crowds in there today so you can't really argue with it
3: no you can't and it also heralds the return of roger federer doesn't it hasn't played a tournament hasn't played a match since australia because that rare thing a knee surgery that he had uh, basically having an accident with his kids in the bath and uh hasn't played a match since got ill in miami so couldn't make his return there so how's he feeling
2: But I am rested, you know, uh, in the sense, uh, mentally and physically, you know, I feel like really, really good. I still feel like probably every week that goes by, I'm going to get better, you know, and then hopefully by Paris, that's where you really want to be at. You know, this should not be a problem, you know, seven times, five sets. okay. Uh, I'm ready for that. And then I I believe in these breaks, you might feel either in the moment sometimes or especially then towards the end of the season or at the end of your career, you know, when again, You've been able to avoid another injury or you're still mentally fresh to grind it out, go go to travel, uh, train hard. I believe you can add everything at the back end of your career. So it depends a little bit on how you see it. but um, I do believe in whatever rest it is, maybe from injury, may it be from just a training block or a vacation, it all ends up somewhere in a canister where you can like pull from it. You know, you see it with, I don't know, Tommy Haas, he's been injured for almost three or something or more years of his career and he's still on tour um, because he's just mentally still fresh to go and he loves it.
3: Well, there's Roger Federer talking about uh, his return to action and as usual, Catherine, he's got a philosophical approach and he can even see the positives in having months off and being able to dip into his reserves of energy as a result.
4: Yeah, I love the idea of this canister of energy that Federer has been carting around with with, with himself Amazon. for his whole career. Yeah, I sort of now see him as some sort of Ghostbuster type person with a energy tennis energy canister on his back instead of whatever it is that the Ghostbusters had on their back. Yeah, I love it. And it's sort of... Uh, it sort of, dare I say it, uh, ties into an analogy I sometimes use, which is that I actually don't use it necessarily so much in relation to Federer, but the idea of these guys having finite reserves and that every match they step onto court, you know, depending on the length of it, is using up that finite reserve, and I think that's sort of what Federer was saying, yet slightly more eloquently in a second language. Thanks, thanks, Federer. Um, <laughs> I mean who, who knows the word canister in a second language, fluent or not? I mean that's pretty that's pretty niche. Um yeah, so and I think he makes an incredibly good point. Players gen very generally speaking, players that, that have had long layouts with injury, they're sort of buying back time, aren't they, which they can use at the end of their career. And Tommy Haas is a, a fantastic example of that. I know Federer has a lot of respect for, for what he's doing, but then, you know, Federer's doing the same But better, I suppose. He's still number three in the world. It's amazing.
3: Yes, really, really irritating uh, for any mere mortal on the planet. Although, we have to say that one man has found the kryptonite in recent times to to deal with him, and he's found the same with everybody. That is Novak Djokovic, who comes in as the defending champion. He's only basically lost half a match all year, withdrew after being a set-down to Feliciano Lopez. I took a bit of stick uh, after last week's podcast, Catherine, from uh, somebody who suggested that I was taking away the glory of Feliciano Lopez in that match but uh, I don't think Lopez would mind too much uh, just admitting that frankly it wasn't the real Novak Djokovic out there who lost that match he got eye problems he he withdrew after a set so uh, that doesn't count as we said last week but Djokovic comes in all eyes are going to be on the French Open, as always, at this time of year, because it's the one big title, like, uh, obviously, the Olympics as well, he hasn't won yet, but he hasn't won in terms of the Slams, the French Open to this point. And the question is whether it becomes an obsession for him. One wonders how Novak Djokovic handles it.
2: It is a wish and it is a goal, like anything else is and was and uh, that's how it's going to stay Uh, in terms of preparation for Roland Garros and nothing major will change Uh, of course I I will intend to improve the game to get better and try to get a step further to in Paris than I've done in the last couple of years, but I'm not the only one that wants to win that title uh, knowing that I was a few sets away from winning title a couple of times it, that fact alone you know, gives me comfort and confidence and it, it actually allows me to believe that uh, whatever I have done so far can be enough, and I believe it's enough, so let's see
3: so there's Novak Djokovic, Catherine, and, well, I mean, if he is stressed at all, if he does feel the pressure at all, he doesn't show it.
4: No, but I I mean, I think he's the master of uh, of not showing it, even more so than, 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 you know, the serene Roger Federer. I do think he has absolutely perfected the art of not giving anything away in these sorts of situations. And I I think probably what he says is a a, roughly a reflection of how he feels. He is sort of, he is very, um, I, I do believe and get the sense that he's a person that is quite good at sort of controlling his emotions and how his mind works and framing the thoughts that he has in such a way that he can make them positive. I mean, I find that practically impossible, but some people seem to be able to have this sort of weird... Admirable mindfulness that, as I say, like even if he does have a moment of feeling obsession, he's sort of able to frame it in a way that it becomes a positive for him. But nonetheless, I cannot really believe, bottom line, that he is not, you know, consumed with desire to win that French Open. How could he not be? How could he not be?
3: One man who won that title eight years in a row. Actually, had to count it up. I mean, I. It was, it, was, it was so extraordinary to see how many years in a row Nadal had won that tournament in Monte Carlo before it finally came to an end in 2013, Djokovic dethroning him there. And he was probably the most interesting, I would say, of the, the interviewees that, that, that you got some audio from over there that, that I heard. And Nadal was talking about what it is like to be on a roll like that because he knows. He knows what it is like to have to keep on backing it up, to keep having to defend these titles, to keep having to be the man that everybody wants to beat. And he doesn't see it as a problem for Djokovic.
1: When you win, it's easier to keep winning. Uh, When you lose, it's easier to keep losing. That's always the same. Dynamics and these kind of things are always the same story and... uh, especially when uh, an unbelievable player like him is is with this unbelievable dynamic so it's difficult to stop him
3: I found that fascinating Catherine the way Nadal summed it up the idea that once you're winning it's it, it's actually easier the pressure comes when you when you stop winning
4: Yeah I mean he he's 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 basically sort of summed up there the the very principle of momentum, hasn't he? But, I mean, g- given everything he's experienced in the sport, it comes from such a position of authority and it sounds so simple coming from his lips. You know, when you're winning, it is actually easier to keep winning than, than to lose. And, of course, conversely, you know, when you're losing, it's easier to keep losing and, and that's, you know, a slight exaggeration of the position he's in at the moment. But he's certainly more familiar with, you know, the the... The negative role that a player can get on than he ever has been at any point in his past. He's just, he's becoming so philosophical, isn't he? In in his uh, in his not old age at all. But uh, but in it his... is funny
3: though how how players become more interesting sometimes when they get older. Uh, I, I wonder whether Djokovic will let the guard down a little bit the more he wins. I, I think at the moment he's just so. Determined not to let anything get in the way that I don't think we always hear the truthful answer from Novak Djokovic because I think he wants to to, to be, play it safe and let his tennis do the talking. I think Federer has become bolder as the years have gone by. Murray certainly has. Nadal, probably most interestingly of the lot, has because he, he always, you know, obviously it's taken him time to, to really grasp uh, the English as a second language. But he's fascinating now.
4: Oh, he really is. He he he's so so interesting now and so reflective. I think there's just this element of self reflection that we, we didn't I, I mean I guess you rarely see it in any early twenty year olds, you know, let alone tennis players. I think um I think that's the most interesting development in, in, in hearing him talk. He's so honest now, he's sort of he bears his soul in a way um which i don't think he ever used to and when when he says as he did today that uh, i feel so much less stressed than i did this time last year you know he really really means it you know and and this time last year he was quite stressed and i think the fact that he has slipped down the rankings a bit and and there's not this you know when he came into the clay court season last year everybody was holding their breath they were saying OK, well, Nadal, since his comeback, hasn't been the Nadal that we know, but will it all change when he gets onto the clay? You know, there were so many expectations. Everyone was holding their breath for what would come. And it's like all of that's gone now. He's sort of got nothing to prove, Nobody, to, nothing to live up to almost anymore. Um, and I think that's a very different position to be in, one that he seems to be preferring a little bit.
3: Could make him ever more dangerous, couldn't it? It could be the, the flip side to the the winning every week and getting the momentum that way. It, this could be a way to free him up. One suspects, and uh, oh, it's going to be brilliant this Monte Carlo tournament, isn't it? I mean, it's a, it's a, what is it? A fifty-six draw, uh, a sixty-four on the the list, but the the top players have buys. But everybody's there. Everybody.
4: Yeah, it it's really amazing. I mean, last year Andy Murray wasn't here. Um he made the decision uh, to go and play in Germany, won that tournament and uh, subsequently went on an unbeaten run on clay, but he was very interesting. Um, talking today, unfortunately, we we can't quite use the audio because he was a little bit mumbly, so uh, it, didn't quality, it didn't quite meet the high quality. Didn't quite meet the high quality threshold that we have here on the tennis podcast. But to summarise a little bit of uh, what he had to say, he was he was very interesting. Very few questions about the baby, only one, in fact, from uh, French journalist, just asking whether he was sleeping okay whether he was being kept from getting a good night's sleep and he said no I'm sleeping just fine she's very good Um, and everything else was all about the tennis and he seemed to be fine and happy about that Um, and yeah he was saying he feels completely different mentally about the clay this year to last year it sounds like last year was a real Light bulb, light bulb moment almost for Murray on clay. Not moment, you know, sort of series long, protracted moment, I suppose. But he really, really had a breakthrough, particularly in terms of his movement on clay last year. It, it feels a little bit like he's he's found the key to unlock the door, and he now, for the first time, believes that possibly he has it within him. To win the French Open, I think he took so much from how close he came to beating Djokovic in Paris last year. And I think it's a slightly different kettle of fish for him this year, the clay court season, certainly mentally.
3: Slightly different kettle of fish. There's a lovely uh, uh, little expression that I'm sure some people are thinking, well, where on earth has that come from? What does that mean? I, I barely understand it myself.
4: I've got nothing to say to that, David. You're waiting. <laughs> you you're expecting me to explain the origin I'm, of I'm that just, expression? I'd, I'd, love a defi-
3: I'd love a definition. All right. Well, we'll look it up for next week, tennis podcast listeners. Keep an eye on at tennis podcast on Twitter. We may be able to unearth the actual origin of a kettle of fish. Uh, anyway, Novak Djokovic uh, has uh, got a, a buy through the first round, and he could. This I'd love this. He could play, play Gail.
4: Be there when it happens with daily live coverage beginning on Monday, May the 20th. Subscribe to Tennis Channel Plus to stream daily coverage of Roland Garros. Use promo code TENNISPOD20 for 20% off your annual subscription. On feast in the third round, Catherine,
3: organise that.
4: <laughs> Well, I'll, I'll do my darndest, David. Um, yeah, um, it's a shame for Gael Monfils. I know that would be fantastic to have that, that sort of match early on in the tournament. And Gael plays so well here. I mean, he was brilliant last year beating Federer. That was such a great match. He really was sensational. Um, but he will almost certainly lose to Novak Djokovic. And uh, I think that's a shame. Ready See, I don't know in. about
3: that. I don't know about that, Catherine Whitaker. The, the form I saw from Monfils last year beating Federer, I remember watching that and thinking his movement and the way he strikes the ball on clay. I just think on a good day he could cause Djokovic some problems. I've said it. There you are, everybody. You can. You said you can the vaguest.
4: You've said the vaguest sequence of words ever. On his day, he could cause no- 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 Djokovic some problems. I mean, all right, and
3: I'm, I'm saying he's going to beat him. There you are.
4: You are saying Gelmonfis is going to knock out Djokovic in the third round. That's what's going to happen. Wowzers! At least, at least I've pushed a bold prediction out of you for once. No, uh... that,
3: that doesn't count if he gets injured or anything like that. If the conditions are a bit ropey, if it's too windy, or if he gets injured, or if it starts raining, none of that counts. All right. Anyway, right. um, so what, what are the matches we've got to look forward to over the next week? Uh, Rafael Nadal could face Lucas Rossell in the second round in his first match. That'd be fun. Uh, Stan Wawrinka against Borna Choric is a potential match uh, for Wawrinka first up. Uh, I wouldn't mind seeing that one. Andy Murray has uh, Hebert or Payer Pe- in the first uh, match that he might play. But everywhere through the draw, I just love the shift in surfaces from, from hardcore. clay i i I actually remember the first time i ever even saw a clay court and it had this sort of mystique about it because we don't have clay courts in great britain not many of them anyway at least i'd never seen one when i was a lad and uh when i first got to play on it i mean you can just imagine can't you how uncoordinated i i was and still am but it was a, a beautiful sight to at least see clay for the first time
4: I I can fully imagine that, David. It's an image that's all too vivid in my mind, like a giraffe trying to find its feet. All right. I knew Um, that was
3: coming. I knew that was coming. Uh, (laughs) I don't want to talk about it. Uh, What I do want to talk about is how the uh, the Monte Carlo Masters has such a rich history and we have been asking people for their memories of that great tournament and, and there are many of them. Uh, we have uh, Soy who says Chesnikov beating Muster in the 1990 final. 1995, I was there when Muster won from match point down against Becker and there was also Alberto Mancini be- beating Becker in 89. That was fun. Uh, Ali also remembers Muster's 95 final win over Becker and also uh, Guga against Arazi in the final in 2001 with Gustavo Curtin winning that particular title. What about 2014 when Stan Wawrinka won it, says Christina. Well, that was certainly memorable. And perhaps the most memorable in recent years was Djokovic ending Nadal's reign, as Joe reminds us. But uh, it's a fantastic tournament. You know, mine, uh, Catherine, I think Rather than sort of results, the the things that really spring to mind for me, it's the first time I ever heard of Rafael Nadal. I I remember hearing his name. I think it was when he was still going, going under the name Rafael Nadal Pereira at the time. And uh, I, I heard about this uh, this teenager who we'd all got to watch out for. It was the first time I ever saw Richard Gasquet play, and I think he reached about the quarterfinals, uh, beat Franco Squillari, lost to Marit Safin. And I always remember Henman afterwards asked about Gasquet, who was only 15 years of age at the time, and he just sort of motioned his single backhand. Uh, in the air for us as if to say that's the shot you want to watch out for and how right he was it was one of my early memories as well Catherine of Roger Federer uh, if I am allowed to just name drop a wee bit here in 2000 in my ATP days I remember he lost a match to Yuri Novak you remember the big Czech player he lost to him 6 one and I remember I, I was the person who had to take Federer to his post-match press conference. And you know how, I don't know whether they still have it, they used to have a an elevator that takes you from the bottom floor up to the top floor where the press room is. Is that still there? Uh,
4: an elevator? No, no, no. We're all, we're all far too... Uh, I mean, if there is, nobody nobody use. I certainly don't use it. I'm far too healthy living for that.
3: Well, I use it, and I would still use it today, even if they hadn't got any need for it. Uh, But anyway, Roger Federer and I were in this tiny little elevator together, and um, he is just sort of looking particularly chastened after losing 7-5 in the third. And he said, why do I lose all the close matches? And I said, I think you're probably asking the wrong person.
4: (laughs) Hang on. You were called upon for for coaching advice, David. Is that what you're saying? I don't know.
3: I mean, I think I think maybe maybe it was just a maybe it was a, a question to himself. I, I don't know. Um, but anyway, I I sort of answered it in the best way that I could. I tried to be sort of you know a little bit comforting and consoling and encouraging all in the same sentence. And he proceeded to lose his next five matches in a row. So (laughs) I don't think my um, coaching career really took off at that. Maybe that would have been my moment. If I'd have said the right thing at that point, maybe he would have thought, do you know what, this guy's got the common touch and and the sort of – he may know absolutely nothing about tennis, but he kind of just got the best out of me in that really difficult moment and look at my results since. Well, it kind of went the other way. Oh, it was uh, your
4: sliding doors moment, David.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I think it was. Uh, that was some year, 2000 it was, and uh, he went on to lose to Yevgeny Kafelnikov in the first round of Wimbledon. I think he, he barely had a 50-50 record in his win-loss column. It was when everybody was saying, this kid's unbelievably talented, but we're not actually sure whether he's ever going to make it as as a top player. And uh, then there was the moment when he, he reached the Sydney Olympics. Uh, I think he, he won the bronze medal. or he Actually, no, he got to the bronze medal match and lost out to Arno D- Pascal, do you remember him, the French player, very stylish player? I certainly do,
4: uh, yeah,
3: yeah. And uh, anyway, uh, from there he went to to Basel and and uh, beat Hewitt for the first time. But uh, it, it was it was very up and down uh, that year for Roger Federer. But that's my personal memory from Monte Carlo there of him. Uh, have you got any memories, Catherine? You'd like to share?
4: I've got tons. I mean, most of them are just of just gazing at. What on the telly looked like the most glorious setting for sport ever, and it turns out that it, in fact, is the most glorious setting for sport All right, in the world. Don't it, rub it in. It's amazing. I know we're doing tennis bucket list uh, in a few short moments, and I'm, I'm enjoying mine, experiencing mine right now because it's, uh, it's, it is just magnificent. If it's not on your bucket list and you haven't been, put it on. Immediately. Um, I mean, the, the uh, Richard Gasquet's victory over uh, Federer in 2005 immediately sprung to my mind. Um, I mean, that was an incredible occasion. It really was. Um, and, yeah, it was back when we thought... I mean, when we were doing, you know, my stupid prediction, my rubbish prediction, uh, somebody somebody, wrote into us admitting that they thought Richard Gasquet was going to be a, a Federer-Djokovic-type world beater for many years and on that day I think probably everybody did and uh, yeah I mean he's look he's had a great career but in terms of the promise that he showed that day uh, it's not it's not lived up to it.
3: No it's 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 funny how it works like that isn't it I mean it just doesn't always happen the way you think it will I mean I I, I think we're experiencing a similar process with um, with Dimitrov aren't we in a way and uh you know one wonders whether that will ever uh change course but you know as you know Catherine I'm still very much a believer uh, we're working on that. we're
4: working through it the tennis podcast is in is in therapy trying to trying to come to terms with the potential failure to deliver on talent that Grigor Dimitrov may uh, may inflict on us
3: Talking of talent, uh, Alex Verov against Andre Rublev, a first round in in Monte Carlo. Make sure you watch that one.
4: Yeah, I love it. I mean, Andre Rublev's not been talked about so much in in the past few months. He's one of the hashtag Next Gen uh, that has been that has gone slightly quieter over the past few months compared to Alex Verov, who seems to have gone stratospheric uh, since Indian Wells. Uh, and Miami, so um, yeah, I, I mean they they've got, they've got very similar looks about them, haven't they? they're sort of tall, a bit stringy still, but you know that's largely down to their age and uh, very explosive games. So yeah, I can't wait. Have you
3: set eyes at all on the uh, the fancy zebra-like stripy outfits that all the Adidas players have been uh, given to wear? So briefly, far?
4: David, and then I averted those eyes because I didn't. Want Why? To go blind or something. I mean, they're pretty <laughs> dreadful, aren't they? No. Pretty dreadful. No,
3: they're good. They're really good. Well, for a start, the stripes and anybody who wears stripes is all right by me as a West Bromwich Albion fan. They're nearly that, aren't they? Uh, I, I was amused at uh, uh, when Adidas were posting all these, uh, these social media pictures of Songa and Zverev and Team and all these Adidas players in their stripey outfits and, and the, the, the women, Kerber, was, was in uh, hers as well and Ivanovic. And then Boris Becker posts a Facebook page of, um, of, of Novak Djokovic wearing what looks alarmingly like a lion's costume to you.
4: yeah i mean maybe it's going to be a safari themed clay court season who knows but i mean i i'm a bit nervous that that those zebra outfits are going to be problematic on on the tv i mean aren't they going to create sort of a magic eye type trippy experience for the eye and the mind i don't know i'm i'm just i'm not sure about it at all david
3: a bit like blue clay, when we had that. I actually ran a poll, Catherine, you'll be pleased to know, about uh, clay. Which is your favourite, green, blue or red? What's your favourite, Catherine? Oh,
4: I mean, I'm a, as we seem to be establishing, I'm a traditionalist, so I'm going to go red. I mean, I, I, I'm all for, you know, trying new things. But what I don't quite understand is there seems to be, there's no purpose to the blue clay other than it being blue for the sake of it. I think that's what bothered me. I mean, just colouring something blue for fun.
3: No, 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 that's not true. It looked. You, you've just been going on about the stripy outfits and whether it works for TV. I tell you what, blue definitely works on the TV. That is without question.
4: But red, red works as well. I don't. I think that was a solution without a problem.
3: Oh, Catherine Whittaker. She just makes too much sense sometimes for my liking. 69% of people, Catherine Whittaker, agree with you. Uh, 7% only like green clay, which is rather a disappointment for me and my fellow Incredible Hulk fans. Uh, 24% uh, liked blue clay, but uh, yes, red, very much the favourite of everybody in the world, it would appear. Uh, Certainly those that uh, decided to vote on my poll, and they were many, Catherine Whittaker, even if you don't like them. Uh, Now, tennis bucket list there are plenty of these uh, this came about because I've been watching Masters Golf over the last uh, few days just uh, dreaming about what it would be like to be attending the Masters Golf it's something I've never done it's something I'd love to do uh, we have uh, Don who says my tennis bucket list is to go to all four slams and go to the Australian Open next year Joel wants to go to the Oz and the US to complete his set it seems to be a bit of a theme that Michelle would like to go to Roland Garros uh, because she hasn't been there uh, Luminata Vasilica, wonderful name, says, I'm going to go one time to all the tournaments that Roger Federer plays for a year. That's quite a good idea, isn't it?
4: I think that might be a fabulous name because it's it's my brother in social media disguise. (laughs) That's my theory.
3: (laughs) Yeah, Vicky Spreadbury says the Australian Open, my daughter's godmother moved back to Australia. I haven't seen her in six years. So tennis and a reunion, that would be ace. I think that's a good point. I love Piki. that she's uh, put
4: the tennis ahead of the, the family reunion on that list of priorities. Lovely.
3: <laughs> uh, PG says uh, Monte Carlo would be, definitely be in my list. Jonathan Woodrow says the South American Golden Swing. Hike from Kyoto, is that right, to Buenos Aires to Rio. Uh, and uh, Ze Carenta says I'd like to see another Brazilian player win three more slams like Guga once did. Please, hashtag my tennis bucket list what's yours Catherine
4: um it's Indian Wells actually it's uh I haven't been to Indian Wells everybody that goes is very smug about it uh unashamedly smug about it it looks just glorious and it falls at a time of the year when my vitamin D stocks are at their lowest ebb so uh yeah Indian Wells is my tennis bucket list item or certainly the the one at the top
3: See, what you need for your vitamin D stocks is a canister. Catherine. <laughs> that, that's what you're missing out on. I mean, I just uh, need a canister also...
4: containing whatever Federer's got in his.
3: Yeah, okay. Uh, mine is, uh, just, just if you'd like to know, apart from Masters Golf, mine is actually to go kind of to the French Open. Hard to believe that I've worked for, in tennis for 20 years and never been to the French Open, isn't it?
4: Incred- that is actually incredible. It's. I mean, it's, it's always clashed with the lead-up to Queen's for you, hasn't it? Which is... Which yeah. is all, all consuming for uh, for media director David Law.
3: Yes, it most certainly is. Uh, now, just a couple of notes of results we've had over the last week before we sign off. Uh, in Charleston, we mentioned uh, Sloan Stevens against Elena Vesnina. Two players, uh, well, Vesnina's been in good form all year round. Stevens is up and down, but she had a cracking win the other day, a really good match against Daria Kazatkina, who's my favourite player on the WTA Tour. One of my favourite players in tennis is that young teenager. Have you seen much of her yet?
4: Yeah, she's cracking. I like her and uh, Margarita Gasparian as well.
3: I think Kina is going to have much the better career.
4: I think you're probably right, but uh, it's hard not to enjoy the backhand, isn't it? results
3: aside that that is true that is true Uh, in Houston Jack Sock has had a a good result he's got uh, through to the final plays one Monaco I think has been really badly injured over the last couple of years so well done to him for getting to the final in Marrakesh uh, Delbonis has beaten Chorich but that's a good result for Chorich Uh, Sybil Kovar has won the title in what is it Katowice or Katowice Kat- like that?
4: Katowice, Katowice. Oh,
3: there you go. All right. Uh, has won that title, beating Camilla Georgi. Uh And so loads of tennis going on. Loads of it. Um, we should also just draw your attention to an article by Simon Briggs of The Telegraph, uh, who has written uh, a, a wonderful article about uh, Monte Carlo. Get this for a headline, Catherine. Tennis is a juicy game of love, money and murder. And Monte Carlo's seen it all.
4: Sorry, when, when was the said murder? Maybe I should... Do I need to get out of town? Okay. Just
3: read the article, Catherine. I mean, you know, that's, that's why you have to read it. On the Telegraph website. Well worth a look. Uh, Catherine, what are you, uh, you going to do now? I mean, when does, tennis starts tomorrow, how busy are you going to be?
4: Very very busy, but uh, I've got some time now to enjoy a a Monte Carlo based dinner and just generally be smug about that. And then, uh, yeah, it all it all kicks off tomorrow, but in a good way.
3: It does, Catherine. Go and have a good time. We're just going to sign off from the tennis podcast with. Well, it's 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 sad news that we the tennis world has had over the past week, but we wanted to to make a reference to it because. Um, it is a man, Julian Hoffelan, uh, a Belgian who is very, very well known in tennis circles, a coach and a friend to many. He spent six years at the Lawn Tennis Association in Great Britain. He coached Dan Evans and Joe Conter for a while as well. There's really been, over the last week, an outpouring of grief and tributes since the news came through that he passed away at the age of 49. Very, very sad news uh, that Julian Hoffelan has died. But we will remember him well, and um, our very best wishes go to his family and friends. That's all we have time for on the Tennis Podcast for this week. We'll be back next week, and we'll speak to you soon.